Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Mishpatim, the Torah reading that covers Exodus chapters 21 through 24, and picked up some parallel passages in Jeremiah 34, 33, and also Matthew chapter 17, and the expansive letter of Philemon. Yes. So you can see all the studies that we've done on this over the years at halal.info slash p18. So as we launch into this, we see that uh, some places that we've come and some important questions to ask, because if you haven't asked them yourselves over the years, I'm sure someone will probably ask you about it when you say either to our fellow brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah, you know, hey, the, the law of God is uh, still important for believers. Or if you say to anybody around you and you talk about, hey, you know, the laws of God are instructions for life. And they'll go, well, what about, you know, and then bring up a whole long list of things that they either looked at themselves or they got on. <laughs> Remember the old uh, chain mail that used to go up by, uh, it used to go by fax originally. And then it started going up by email. And now it's just posted everywhere. And then now people are doing YouTube videos and now TikTok videos and on and on it goes. So these things just keep circulating year after year after year after year. But... When we look at the context of where we've been, we just were at in the Torah section Yitro, uh, which covered there of Exodus 18, 19, and 20, which that includes the Big Ten or the Ten Commandments. So question is, okay, we've just now had this revelation as it was to them at their particular time of Israel at the mountain. Now we, when we encounter this on a regular basis, how do we live out these Ten Commandments in the world, in a world that is full of idolatry? Now, you think of that, well, where is idolatry today? Well, it may not be overt, but it is still there, still there in its various forms, even today. And cruelty, oh, certainly that's not gone out of style. Neither is oppression, selfishness, disrespect for authority, apathy, and envy. So, you list them all up there, and yeah, some of the ways that they get represented and manifested have changed over the centuries and the eons, but the fact that these things happen and people have them deep in their hearts has not changed. So thus you could say, that really is the heart of the matter. People may say, well, the situations change. Well, unless you have a heart transplant from heaven they don't change they don't change the same as they were same as it ever was yes in the garden of eden to the mountain of god to the garden in the new jerusalem until we get there eventually this will just keep going on and on and these things will just keep popping up again and again so 
One of the other things you'll see as we've gone along into these list of instructions in this passage, uh, does the Torah promote vigilantism or taking the law into your own hands? That was one of the things that was popular among these various uh, memes or the, you know, the little gotcha questions. You know, can I go out and uh, murder my neighbor when I see him mowing his lawn on the Shabbat? Um, and does the Torah promote slavery? Uh, we saw lots of examples of what to do in this situation and that situation. Is it talking about that? And, you know, or even the powerful's oppressing of the less powerful over the powerless. That's really come into vogue in conversations today with the paradigm that keeps showing up in lots of different situations of the oppressed and the oppressor. And the oppressed being powerless against the oppressor. And that is one reason why you have so many people out in the streets campaigning for what happened from Gaza to those communities around there in Israel. That narrative of oppressed and oppressor and who gets put into those categories and what the oppressed can do as a result of being in that category is a key reason why you can have people saying the things that happened on October 7th of 2023, those absolutely horrific things that happened, that is allowable for the oppressed to do, to throw off the chains of the oppressor. That is a paradigm that goes out today. So are these judgments, are these mishpatim, just ignorant, obsolete things? And what do these teachings mean at the time that they were put out? And what do these instructions mean for us today? That's something that we always have to have these questions as a reset every time we go through this and in our conversations with our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah and anybody else we meet that we talk about. Uh, yes, Larry, you have a comment or a question over there. Well, the only thing that I can think about commenting on this is it says disrespect for authority in their day, their authority was, was of their faith. And they, they were supposed to, at least, always be uh, uh, subservient. Their, their authority was supposed to be always subservient to, to their faith, to God. So when they were being disrespectful of their authority, they were being disrespectful to God. Mm. I yeah. mean, today, we don't have that same thing. We've been disrespectful to an authority that is godless. Yeah. But that's one of the things that we've talked about, and especially just recently when we went through John chapter 10 with that whole issue of blasphemy, and we actually saw it in the Jeremiah passages that we, we were just looking at, that um, you would see that their disrespect for those instructions related to freeing of the the freeing of their servants after their time of service and at the time of the, the Jubilee or the Yobel or at the time of the Shemitah or the sabbatical year, that that was also blasphemy or taking the reputation of God and dragging it down into it. So they may have forgotten who it was that they served and you see the prophets talk a lot about that of forgetting who it was that they actually served. 
Yeah, forgetting who's in charge. Forgetting whose name is on the building that they are putting all their attention toward. Yeah, yes, uh, Deborah, go ahead, please. Uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of funny, though. You know, we um, when we g- give our hearts to God, we become his slaves. And we become, you know, we fall under the master. However, you know, uh, when we decide that we are the masters and the things are upside down where we're walking on our hands, you know what I mean? Then God has to give us a wake-up call. And I think that's coming here any time here in uh, the United States. You know, from my understanding that, you know, the the blood moons were a uh, a symbol that the it, that was given in Israel, you know, and I know that some is coming here now across the United States. I think we need to be prepared. And um, I just pray to God that he gives us an answer, uh, you know, of what to do. I, I hear a lot of... Uh, people telling us what we did wrong, but what do you do as a group and a people in the time of that crisis? Like, what were they doing? I, 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 I'm, I'm overwhelmed trying to figure out, okay, God, yeah. One word, teshuva. Well, teshuva, I'm, we, yes, we're turning around, but like my brother, said, my brother said today, he said, Deborah, you know, even in war, there's casualties. Oh, thanks, brother. <laughs> yes. Casualties come in war. Uh, so I think Christine and then uh, Ann there. Go, go ahead. Hi. Thank you. Um, I guess what I'm hearing is head over heels, right? So we are given the great capacity to be in the image of Elohim and think in the image of Elohim or be ruled by our heels, our earth nature. And, um, you know, that was a prophecy all the way from the beginning in uh, the garden. And so this just, I just wanted to answer one of these questions, that what are the teachings mean today, and are they ignorant and obsolete, and what do these instructions mean today? It's like it's so relevant because I'm still, we still are trying to master our beast nature, the twisted nature, with the Ruach you know, the Holy Spirit, just every day, like, hi, Yom, today I will get up early and not sleep in, and I will do my readings and prayers. And so it's still so, so relevant, Torah, and what we can be taught. Thank you. Yeah, indeed. Uh, yes, Anne, go ahead, please. I was thinking of the word mishpatim and mishpoha, and mishpoha is mm. family, and mishpatim is rulings. Well, how, what's the connection here? You know, mishpatim and mishpoha, uh, the root word. Yeah. In the family, and, in, uh, in the family, shot. we we should have rulings. You know, well, okay, uh, we're family, and you know, number one, respect one another, or number two, you know, clean up after yourself. Number two, whatever you know the rulings in the family, to make that family a unit. And, and then from there, it, it, it multiplies to the community. And or, then on yes, and as uh, two great questions that were asked, one at the beginning of the book and one in the Gospels, is uh, the beginning, am I my brother's keeper? And you see also in one of Yeshua's parables, is like, you know, who is my neighbor? That's in response to the, the great uh, parable of the 
Good Samaritan is what was the response to that. Well, who is my neighbor? Yeah. Is a Samaritan my neighbor? Yeah. As incredibly uh, corrupting as the Samaritans had done and tried to do and continued to do throughout history. You see that when the Gospels, that's when the message comes and God is actually pulling at their hearts and those people actually listen, they were willing to leave their preconceptions behind. They were willing to, as a Samaritan, listen to a Judean or a Galilean and say, huh, God is actually with you. And perhaps when you're saying that the salvation is coming through the Yehudim, through the Jews, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. You know, we have our own Pentateuch here. Maybe we don't need our own Pentateuch. Maybe the one that came through the Jews, the Yehudim, that's, that's the one we should go with. So, yes, uh, Anne, go ahead, please. Well, the second thing was that it's very interesting that the very first verses of Exodus 21, from what I, I don't have them right in front of me, but the first thing that the Lord brings up is freeing your slave. Yeah. And, uh, and so, wow. I mean, I say, well, the Lord really considers that so important. Then people that say, oh, God says it's okay to have slaves. No. His first ruling is about freeing them. And then the people themselves, then they freed them. But then a couple months later, they said, I can't do without this housework. Yes. <laughs> or whatever, and brought them back and into it again. And, and it, was, it was very interesting. That's why that's a very important parallel passage to this. Because what you're seeing is when you see the historical context, this was like right before the exiles right before big's God, uh, God's big time out for Israel and you know, also with the, the northern, the northern uh, kingdom as well, that they were going to get a big time out. Well, to do what? To, you see with this revelation that, that came there that's recorded in Jeremiah, the diagnosis was correct. Oh, we haven't been letting the land have, it, have its rest. Oh, we haven't been freeing the slaves. Why haven't you been? What is really wrapped up in those two instructions? Freeing your, freeing your servants and letting the land rest. Does God exist? Well, if he does, maybe he's going to care for me while I'm giving the land a time out, while I'm letting my workforce go. You think of both of those as like, ah, especially when you think of a, an economy where you're heavily dependent upon a workforce. I mean, that's, that's one of those things that, that did in what became of the uh, heavily labor-intensive and was one of the supposed justifications for the southern economy was we need all these people around here. Well, once you started getting things in there like the cotton gin and, and other innovations that made 
needing lots and lots of people out there working uh, less and less important, well, then you don't need that anymore. But at the more fundamental part is, well, this is the land that the God has given. Do you trust him when he says, hey, you're going to have a bounty in the sixth year? So much so that it will last you for the sixth, seventh, and then the eighth year as well, because at the, the seventh year, you're, you're giving the land a rest, but you're planting there in the eighth year. Because you're not planting in the seventh year for the eighth year. No, you're planting in the eighth year for what would be the ninth year or the starting of the cycle over again. So you've got to trust that you, on that sixth year, are going to get three years worth of crop. So you've got to trust that that's actually going to come. And you've got to trust that when the service time of your workforce is coming up, that when you let them go, that will be okay for you. That will be okay. You won't go destitute. Things won't just devolve into nothing. Because when, when you think about this, this wasn't a rolling cycle that everybody had. This was everybody at the same time. So when you think of your operation and you've got a certain workforce, and then suddenly that, everybody's out the door that you had, a certain percentage of your folk that were working there as indentured servants, that they're now gone. Uh-oh, what are you going to do at that particular point in time? Do you trust God in that sense? Yeah. So, yeah, these are important questions to be asking all the time when you go through these particular passages because it can be just easy to say, well, these people were just, this was just long, long, long ago. Uh, what could it possibly have any bearing in what we are doing here today? So let's go look at this a little bit further. And when it says, these are the Mishpatim, this is what starts a phrase in Exodus 21 through 23 called the Book of the Covenant. And it's, talked, it's mentioned as such there in Exodus 24, 7, when he talks about that he blessed and sanctified this Book of the Covenant there that wraps up these instructions and that these instructions are referred to as the mitzvatayv and the umishpatayv and then the uchukotayv so these being the commandments the the instructions or the ordinances and then also the your judgments that come through through those so one of the things that is a, it's a very helpful um, observation that's put forward here in the New International Dictionary of the Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, in its look at the word mishpat and how that's used, it says, what is the most often the topic of concern is the process of governing the, setting of some, the settling of some dispute whether between human parties or between God and the Israelites, or the actual verdict itself. Mishpat is often found in close proximity to other legal terms such as chok, which means appointment or decree, Torah, which means instruction, tzadek, or righteous, and tzadakah, or righteousness. So 
an important thing to get out of that is mishpat is about process. In other words, you know, the instructions, show your work. When, remember in math class, they said, show your work. Show your work. You know, just don't put the answer down at the bottom. How did you get there? Yeah. How did you get there in that process? <laughs> you probably have heard this story before, but, you know, when I was going through calculus. Um, my calculus teacher would just, just get completely flabbergasted with me because I would do the whole process right but get the wrong answer. And it's like, how did you do that? Well, what happened was, is I would get uh, the various functions in their use correct and the various sort of um, calculus processes correct. But the adding and subtracting is what, what fouled me up. I mean, basic stuff that you just learn in grade school. That's what fail, fouled me up. So you can look through the process and go, that's where it went wrong. Yes, if you don't if you plug in the right numbers and handle the right numbers in the right way, then you're going to get the wrong result. So thus, what you're seeing in here, the Ten Commandments are like your basic instructions through that. The Mishpatim and then a lot of what we see in the book of Deuteronomy and other enfolding of these instructions is the showing your work and the process of it. How do you actually get there? Because it can be great to say, oh, to uh, honor your father and your mother. What does that mean? Oh, I honor them. Well, do you curse them? Do you do this? Do you do that? Do you rebel against them? Those sorts of instructions reveal what that means to honor or to chavod your father and your mother, to heap honor or weight upon them. Yes, uh, Christine, you got it. Well, you just, thank you, Jeff. You just said it, weight. Do we think, do we regard them lightly? Do we regard each other lightly? Or do we put weight on it? Mm, yes. So we go on further as some examples of uh, the use of mishpat and various by various uh, key players throughout the Tanakh or the Hebrew scriptures. Now Moshe, we'll see that as we move on into Numbers chapter twenty-seven, is the famous case or the case study of the daughters of Zelophehad. and that key ruling from that a decision was made. This guy has only daughters. Well, can his family name move on? And it's like, yes. That is the, the key lesson in that is, yes, it can move through the daughters into the next generation. The family name and the holdings and the legacy of the father can move through the daughters onward. That's just because that is the situation that came forward. And some, a lot of people wonder, well, why are a lot of these instructions related to men and what men have to do? Well, a lot of those come from the way that God has created and the lesson of that, of male and female. Yeah, this is not a biology class, but the things that you learn through that of male and female show that what? It is a unit that does what brings a new generation it requires the male and the female 
to bring the next generation. Now, people will say, well, you can, quote, hack that. You can do that in a lab. You can do this with this. You can do with that to kind of get around that whole situation. And that's true with everything in life. You can, quote, hack the instructions that God gives. But what is the result from it? We got uh, Larry as a comment or a question, then Tammy. I'm wondering, is that how Messiah got to be the son of David? Because Joseph was not his real father, but Mary was his mother, and they were both descended from, from David. Uh, but or from the from the Ju Judah, right? And uh, mm. and was that because Mary? Then in that case, was that counted counted him his his uh, descendant or whatever you call it? Oh, from from David. Well, that's what the whole purpose of those genealogies that you see in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke was to trace that down. Through yeah. that, uh, so it must have been through Mary that they. Well, some some people suspect one of those is, but and there's arguments been going back and forth whether it really is Miriam's line in there or not. But one could say, yeah, that could be one one of those lessons. But the key point is that you can trace that through both of those genealogies back to um, through David because David intersects both of those, and Abraham intersects both of those, going all the way back up. But he was never, he wasn't really, a, a, he wasn't really related by blood to, jo to Joseph. Indeed. So, adopted in. Adopted into the family. Well, when you say that he was implanted into Mary. So he then became into humanity. So Yosef adopted that as his. And that's what the instruction was of the angel. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about taking Miriam in to be your wife. Because what has started in her, it's not from some guy, not from some uh, violent situation that happened to her, not from some paramour. No, this is the work of heaven that's doing this. So don't worry about this. Whatever is going to result from people talking within your hometown there, don't worry about it because this is something that heaven is doing. So, uh, yes, uh, Tammy. Yeah, because like you were talking about earlier about the um, biology of things or whatever. Whenever we try to, in our modern age, get around that, Every way to do that has been fraught with ethical and moral evils. Um, whether it's um, a you know, husband and wife deciding they want to have children together, and maybe for whatever reason they can't do it together the way God planned it biologically, so they hire somebody to harvest her eggs, harvest his sperm, and force the issue. They create more embryos than that couple would ever be able to bring forth into the world to be able to give a good home to. What happens to those embryos? So that you have that ethical dilemma. Or you have another ethical dilemma if you decide to use someone else's sperm or someone else's eggs. You're bringing a child into that marriage that is not fully related to the couple who's going to be raising them. Or even worse, if you are already in a sinful relationship, like a homosexual relationship, 
and you want to create children and bring children into that relationship, you have to hire a woman to use her womb, which also is fraught with ethical issues. All of those bring upon great evils because what happens if that child in that surrogate's womb? What if um, that child is, def you know, the, they might, sometimes you hear stories of people trying to force that woman into medical procedures over her own body that are immoral to her. But because that child is not hers, they feel that they have the right to inflict, demand her to have an abortion, for example, when it might be against her bodily autonomy. So every single situation that we try to get around and try to engineer ourselves out of nature and maybe what God has planned for us creates far worse problems than accepting God's will for whatever comes about in our lives. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Well, thank you. Some other examples that we have here of the use of mishpat throughout the Tanakh or the Hebrew scriptures, you see that Yehoshua or Joshua, he gets the mishpats there as part of that uh, holy handoff from Moshe into the next generation. So you see that uh, just as Aharon dies, then it goes on to Eleazar and uh, passes on down to the new generation of the high priests there. So then the top leadership, Moshe, that passes off to Yehoshua to carry on the mishpat or the judgment going on into the land. Then you see also that uh, Shlomo or Solomon builds a hall of justice or a house of mishpat that Beit Mishpat, that that would be a place where you would have the ruling. Then we get one of the great examples of that, where you have uh, what's come to be known proverbially as you know, splitting the baby uh, from one of uh, Solomon's uh, great decisions that he made of trying to get people to get to the source of their, their true desires in a case. And then a very interesting one in the longest psalm, the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119, you see that there are 22 uses of mishpat in connection with the Torah. And a very interesting aspect to that is that this could point that decisions that come from God are also as weighty as, the, as instructive as his commands and instructions. But the thing is to always remember that they are based on a situation. So we've talked about this before, the, the hierarchy of the lessons from God. You have the mitzvot, the commandments, and then you have the ordinances, and then you've got the judgments that come down from that. And that is why it's an important thing to get a picture of which one you're looking at here to see which sort of an application is that. And you've seen that in, here in the United States, that's become a topic du jour these days, when you see, is it a court ruling? Is it a law of Congress? Is it a constitutional uh, original? Is it a constitutional amendment? Because what? Amendments do what? They become considered part of the Constitution itself. That is like the um, mitzvot in the parallel there, saying that these are the guiding principles for this particular country that we're in. But then you've got the, the laws of Congress 
that become the, okay, these are the ordinances. How are we going to put this into effect? And <laughs> then you can say the, uh, the uh, rules and such that come through all the morass of uh, the various administrative agencies, those become sort of like laws of Congress, although not really. But then you've got the judgments that come from the courts. And you have the Supreme Court being that which puts this into action. And just like a Supreme Court or even one of the judicial appellate courts that we have here in the United States, they can make a ruling that is narrow, meaning it applies to only a certain situation or maybe a certain uh, location, something like that, or it can be a broad decision that's really precedent setting that then some other courts can use that to make a decision upon. And there's been bad sorts of uh, Supreme Court decisions that have happened over time, one of which uh, basically codified slavery in the United States. That was a bad one. And then others that built upon top of that. And those had to be thrown out with other rulings that overturn those. And then there was actually amendments to our Constitution, several of which that followed after the Civil War that we had in this country that said, all right, if it wasn't clear before, we're going to make it certainly clear now that uh, this whole idea of, of slavery, people that are considered second-class citizens, etc., that is just that's not what this country is all about and put those into effect uh yes uh christine go ahead please so on the first one um about the daughters yes if i recall that's it really wasn't written out in the torah that's where god had to or moshe had to go and say hey well this is a unique situation and he still went and sought the counsel of um, the Lord. So, yes. Yeah, and several other ones, but this one really comes up, up to mind that even though it wasn't in the written Torah or the oral Torah, um, the Torah does record that uh, it was a stumper and Moshe had to still go to uh, Hashem and ask for the clarification. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, it also became uh, sort of a precedent for what came later as far as what it meant to be descended from Israel. Because originally, it was what? Related to your father. Well, then it came to be um, thought to be extrapolated from the various sorts of persecutions and exiles and such that you would, may not know who the father was. So then how would you know? You would know who your mother was so that it would come through that. And that's one area where it's led back to precedent for saying, okay, your lineage and your legacy can come through your mother as well as your father because of this particular situation there. So that's well, you could say a great example of mishpat. It's a decision to say, Okay, the principle is that it goes through the father. But what is the reality is you may have a situation where someone has only daughters. Well, then what do you do? Well, the same principle is there. It's just it's going to go through 
the daughters as well as any sons or anything. So one of the great lessons we get from this is it's first situational and then it's a principle. And just like we've talked about with the Ten Commandments, the principles that are in the Ten Commandments should follow through to the ordinances that come from the Ten Commandments. And those ordinances should also fit through into the judgments that come through those, any sort of situational judgment that comes with the uh, daughters of Zalofahad. So the situational rulings, those, you could say, court rulings, should also apply to the Ten Commandments. And really, the two great commandments, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments should flow out of that, and even the Mishpatim, or the court decision, should flow out of that. And since we're seeing a lot of Mishpatim, those two, the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment, are always active in all of the Mishpatim we're looking at here. You may see a lot of people that will try to say, well, these are just a bunch of you know ignorant bigots who wrote these particular things in the Torah based on their backward society that we're at, that was steeped in slavery. But you still have those two things that are working. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself are wrapped in all of those mishpatim that follow. So that's one of the things we're going through the book of Galatians right now. And we spent a lot of time there looking at, well, what is the new covenant? Because that is a fundamental question that follows through in Paul's whole discussion there on what the instructions of God are and related to circumcision being a particular application of that. And then what that came to be known at in the first century as the term means. But when you hold it up as a fundamental that love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, are functional even there as well. Thus, you are seeing that you're not going to get lost in the weeds of saying, well, this was a capitulation to some sort of a political group that Paul was doing or something else. You are keeping the context of it you are giving the benefit of the doubt paul is not violating the greatest commandment the second greatest commandment the new covenant which flows out of both of those which means the new covenant was to write his laws including the greatest commandment the second greatest commandment the ten commandments the mishpatim everything he's going to write that upon your heart and because the heart of man is deceitfully wicked, what is he going to have to do? Give you a new heart and put the Spirit of God within you to be able to keep these commandments and to be able to know the Lord. And through that, you are given, God declares your iniquities, your transgressions, your sins are remembered no more through that and that's one of the great promises and good news of the new covenant that 
all of his instructions become part of us, that it flows out from us. We're not looking to game the system because why? We know the Lord. We know that his instructions are there for what? Our tov. They're there for good. They're there for our good to make us prosper, to make us fruitful, to multiply in the earth, and to call all the nations toward the creator of heaven and earth and back to the creator of the heaven and earth. So thus, you could say, that is the benefit of the doubts that we should always take in when we look at these particular mishpatim. So, one of the things that we can see in case law is that it is a wise situational application of principles of the first commandment, the second greatest commandment, the Ten Commandments, they're all going to flow out from that. How do you put these principles that are behind those into action? So it's like in computer code, Larry, an if-then statement. If this happens, then you do this. If this happens, then you do this. But then, as you know, with those, those uh, logic sort of... Um, instructions can be nested in there and that's what we see with a lot of the mishpatim that we're seeing in there if this happens then do this but while you're doing this if this happens then do this and it can continue to nest down in there well how can you keep all those things straight well thankfully your computer, when it gets lost in the sea of nested instructions in there, remembers what? The root of it. Remembers where it started, the original statement. So sometimes when you're programming, you can get lost where you're at in the whole tree of things. But with us, when we're looking at it, the Ten Commandments, the two greatest commandments, are our first statement. If, blah, 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 blah. So... That's one of those key things to, to keep in mind. So as, as we move forward into this, we'll just kind of do a little bit of a review here. So mishpat, the meaning there in Hebrew is a judgment, decision by arbitration, legal specifications, a legal case, a legal claim, and comes from the term there of it's either as a noun, shafat, or the verb form of it, to judge, or a judge, a shafat. So thus, you are making a distinction between one thing and another. Yes. So, just in one little thing to take a look at from the judicial aspect and 13 kind of hues of it. We're not going to go into a lot of this detail of it, but these are good things to keep in mind because they are really, um, and we'll, we have access to this, so you don't need to write like mad, but uh, we'll, we'll have, Tammy will be giving us a rundown of all of these things here. So Tammy will be giving us this, 
Yes, keep, keep the eyes open for the notes from this because we'll have uh, this list of it. But the basic as aspect of it is this is a judicial, these are primary the judicial aspects of it. And from the judicial, you get the act of deciding a case of litigation that's brought before a civil magistrate. And from the judicial, we get the place of deciding the case of litigation. So one of the things that you see in this particular passage that we're looking at Mishpatim here today, where is it that this judgment happens? They tell it to bring it to, to the judges and or to bring it to God, which is a challenge in this because if you were to look under the hood in Hebrew, it's the same word. Ha Elohim, which gives uh, translators some fits sometimes, which is why you'll see some translations will say, bring it to the judges. Some will say, bring it to God. Because a, a lot of uses in the Hebrew scriptures, it's not just Elohim, it is Ha Elohim. So, which is kind of funny when we were in Korea, um, the Korean doesn't, normally have the article the in the language so thus when you learn english and they realize there is a the they'll just throw the in front of all kinds of stuff where it doesn't belong so it was just kind of fun to hear them talk about the god yes i want to pray to the god and well we would say we would just pray to god Yes, so thus in Hebrew, you'll see it is the God, Ha Elohim, Ha Elohim. It's very, very common in the scriptures where it says God, it's Ha Elohim. Or like to go to the mountain of God, it is Har Ha Elohim, is the mountain of God. So thus you got the process of litigation, that's what we talked about with how you actually bring a case. And in the Bible, just like in our judicial system today you don't just do things your own you know see somebody doing an infraction and you know you see somebody running a red light and so what do you do you go run them off the road no <laughs> you only think of running them off the road <laughs> no it's like well what role do you actually function in society and those there are those that are actually in modern society you delegate that law enforcement to somebody why do you do that just like what we're reading through in scripture same as in society today is that if you are doing everything yourself you are as the saying goes judge jury and executioner there is a big problem with what bias bias is a huge one you are not separated from the situation enough to think and judge cor correctly, which gets into one of the other of the Mishpatim we saw here today. Do not follow the in making a decision. Do not follow the masses in making a decision. Do not consider the poor man, or whether do not consider the rich man. Or, as you'll see it sometimes rendered, do not consider faces. Do not consider reputation. So, 
A judge is to be blind about the panim, the faces of whoever is standing in front of him. Is it a rich guy? Is it a celebrity? Is it a poor guy? Is he the biggest uh, ne'er-do-well ever to walk the earth? Judgment should not make a decision one way or the other. And we've seen in just the past few years where some things have gone really off the rails judicially because either they were wanting to go with the masses and what the masses decide, they were considering someone's position, whether they were poor, whether they were a celebrity, and that affected the decisions. So thus, when you're seeing the original idea that you have in a lot of courthouses of a statue of Lady Justice being blind with the scales off to the side, that is what that is supposed to represent. That comes right out of the Mishpatim here. You are not to consider the person that is before you in how you treat them. So thus, it's the same thing you see in the parable of the Good Samaritan we mentioned before. The Samaritan came along and gave help, did not consider what the status was of the person in front of him. Because that's one of the twists that you could see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan and this person from Yehuda were supposed to be sworn enemies. And historically, yeah, there was a lot of bad blood between but the parable of the Good Samaritan was to say, who is my neighbor? For a Samaritan, it could be a Jew. And for a Jew, it could be a Samaritan. That was one of the lessons. So if you see someone needing help, you don't take into consideration, oh, what status is it? What can I get out of it? No. Does the person need help or not? Uh, yes, Christine, you have a comment. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yes, Johanna, go ahead, please. Thank you. Um, so I'm thinking about the time where the two women are fighting over the baby and Solomon has cut mm. the baby in half. So how do we get to the root of the Torah to that decision? Yes. What is the root of the Torah in that decision? Well, who was it who actually lost the baby? And what was the ploy that was being employed? Shlomo was basically trying to unravel the malicious witness in this, trying to unravel who it was that was testifying falsely, who had done the switcheroo, because what was indeed going on there? You had an infant death, an involuntary manslaughter that happened. Just like, okay. Yeah, so... Yes, an unintentional sort of thing, and a baby died because of it. But then you had another sort of thing, which you'd say kidnapping on top of it, because you swapped the babies out. So you could say, um, yes, the baby that's still alive, that's mine. So thus, the ploy of it was to try to get to the heart of what was actually happening and to unravel that whole ruse that was going on yes um I, I don't know if that that helps a lot of what the splitting of the baby was about that was basically to try to unravel 
who had actually done because he had already taken two steps down. You think of you think of what David did with his uh, fall. That was like several steps. It was first uh, being out there. Uh, so you've got the lust of the eyes. Supposed to be a war. Lust of the eyes. And then goes from one to the other, to the other, to the other down there. So when he gets confronted by the prophet Natan, what is it that he is realizing? How far he had fallen. How far. And you see that reflected in the steps he had gone down from where he was in those psalms that we all love, the Lord is my shepherd, to, you know, <laughs> which is very interesting that you have the Lord is my shepherd and what was the um, parable that the prophet told him? Beloved sheep. I was like, oh, you've gone from being a great uh, under-shepherd of the shepherd to now stealing sheep. Yes, stealing sheep from somebody else's sheepfold. So, and you can see, it's very interesting how indignant David got about this sheep stealing that was going on. And then realized, no, that sheep stealer, that's you. You are the sheep stealer. And what led you down that road to do that? And to think that you were entitled to it because what? You were probably getting a picture and you see that with the whole thing of, <laughs> as it talks about with the, when we get in Deuteronomy and the instructions of kings, what were they not to do? Not to collect women. So that was one of the things because why? That's what every other king did. Every other leader, they just felt themselves entitled to it. I am king. Yeah, they think, it's good to be king. And then just start uh, collecting all kinds of things. Chariots, women, prestige, power, horses, all of these things you're going to collect for yourself. Because why? You think you're entitled to it all. But really, no. There can be just ways into your own destruction. Uh, yes, Christine, go ahead, please. I'm thinking uh, about uh, the Good Samaritan and that. Yes. Also in Exodus 23 about the uh, ox. So Yeshua was actually going back to the seed in the Torah with this, where in the Torah it says, you know, about a load or if you see a donkey, and it talks about it being. Um, someone who hates you mm. who's fallen down so the torah is always uh spoken about it's in one spot i believe it's about your enemy and then in deuteronomy it might be about uh your friend if you yes. see your friend's donkey heavily laid yes. down so i also think it's fascinating what are your thoughts on that that's what you could say that is a telltale sign that the caricature of this being the revelations of a bunch of uh, heat-stroked uh, shepherds wandering around the desert is just complete baloney because you're seeing these being revelations of a heart matter that is far more than just dealing with a matter of the time period because you're saying, 
okay, you're dealing with people with servants, right? Because the reality of the time period with the economics being the where they were, there was no credit card you could go out and get. If you are overextended, you are toast. So what do you have left? You start selling off things. What if you've got nothing left to sell off? You start selling off yourself to it. You start selling off your children to it. But in the sense of people being destitute, what then are the instructions? You don't take advantage of people in this situation. You don't take your advantage of being, being someone with means who is basically buying the debt of somebody else and then getting their employment for you. You don't take advantage of them, whether you are someone who's buying the debt as, with indentured servitude or as an employer. You get some employers who think that they are entitled to people who just end up being in their building. And so thus, because they are in a situation where they may feel that they have to stay there because the opportunity cost of leaving that job and going somewhere else is too high. They may not be able to just walk out and go into somebody else's em employment. You know, they may have debt. They may be very hard to get a job in a particular area. So people may feel trapped. So in that situation, you as the employer, what, do you own your employees because they work for you? No. And sadly, because too many people have felt themselves entitled to own their employees, they've had to get more and more and more rules, rules upon rules upon rules, rules upon rules, because people didn't get it that they don't own their employees. So they take advantage of them and they get them in a low spot and then just turn the screws to them because they figured they can. Well, then that causes a problem for everybody else because everybody else is now, if they are scrupulous, being now saddled with all of these rules upon them, that's for, for people that are unscrupulous. So thus when you say, well, what is the, the benefit of society? Just beyond you yourself as being an employee or you yourself being in debt, it is to the benefit of everybody that you are loving your neighbor as yourself. Whether your neighbor is your enemy or your employee or your employer or your spouse or your friend, your colleague, your customer, you know, your person that you're, you're a vendor somebody that you're going into shop at the place? Do you love the person there as much as yourself? And, you know, it's the popular thing today is that anytime someone's having some sort of thing, they whip out their camera and just start videoing and then post it up there of what they think may be improper treatment. It may be, it may not be. So lastly, we'll kind of end things out. To, Tammy will have the whole list of these uh, instructions that we have. But one of the things I wanted to get to is related to the Haftarah that we read of Philemon. And not, not Philemon Yon, but Philemon. 
And this claim that we often will hear, either from those outside the body of Messiah or inside the body of Messiah, is that Yeshua allegedly did away with the Torah, so we don't need to worry about what it says about slavery. I've actually heard this on a program from someone who um, was uh, claiming to be someone who respected the Torah. Like, well, um, Jesus kind of did away with that, so I don't really, we don't really have to worry about this. And he just kind of skipped over it because someone asked him about these particular mishpatim, and he's like, "Well, he's kind of done done away with, so we don't really have to worry about that anymore." Well, if they are indeed principles ordinances, judgments that flowed through them. Was there a lapse in judgment that led to these mishpatim? Or is it our lapse in judgment based on our misunderstanding of the principles that goes at the level of commandments, ordinances, and judgments that moves down with that? And really... The reality of the situation, we see it in this very short letter, that the Apostle Paul is really serving up a prime cut of the Torah wisdom here about how masters and servants are to relate to one another. And it really gets to the heart of matter of all that we see in these particular instructions in Mishpatim and what we'll get to in Deuteronomy, the good portion of Deuteronomy that is related to the commandments and the ordinances, and the judgments, and how they are applied to all kinds of different situations. So, do you love your neighbor as a servant as yourself, or do you see your servant employee as a person and treat them as such? So, some of those topics that we get to in this particular thing. Now, it's just kind of interesting, looking under the hood a little bit, that Onesimus, which is the servant that is the topic of this particular letter, His name means useful or handy. And we see that historically that it was a very common name. So you're basically, yes, so there was a lot of handyman. A lot of handyman roles that you see throughout the uh, Greek and the Roman Empire at the time period. Now in verse 11 there, where you're talking about uh, he wasn't useful before, but now he is useful, is seen quite often as a pun in Greek because useless is akrestos and useful is eukrestos. And they're all talking about from the same kind of root, which Christos, it means anointed, and that's what is used for um, to translate Mashiach from the Hebrew Scriptures and what we have Christ from in English there in the New Testament. But the Septuagint is translating tov also as krestos. So it's kind of interesting that you see an interesting play that the Septuagint brings through of krestos is how the Septuagint is translating Mashiach, but then krestos, which is kind of the play and what you see in this particular letter of Philemon, is what is translating the Hebrew word tov or good. So you see that the Mashiach did not come to be served, but to serve from there in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. And you see also that the Mashiach is the one who turns one from being useless to heaven to being useful for heaven. 
So thus, you see this little letter that just seems like uh, it's a little dispute between a at, at one level between an employer and employee and another level between a master and a slave to being something that is really talking about relationship between heaven and humanity and also between humanity and other people in humanity. We see in this particular passage in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Yeshua with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Yeshua answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for to whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Yeshua called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So thus, one of the things that you see in going back to this issue back with Philemon is that what is the relationship now that two people have within the body of Messiah and in a society in which you have, and it was far worse in the Roman world about servants and masters, slaves and masters. It was very, very brutal. But Onesimus has changed. And Philemon has changed. So they're in the same congregation. Now what do you do with each other? So you're working within a situation where uh, that may not be something that you're able to solve yourself. Well then, how do you relate to each other? What does the apostle say? Receive him back as if you're receiving me back in Paul. So it's like, you have seen me, Paul, as a servant of God. So see Onesimus back as a servant of God also. And it is like Paul is saying, I'm basically sending my heart to you, the deepest parts of me. Seeing him as a fellow believer because strictly speaking according to torah what was paul's obligation with anisimus to release him and it was philemon's duty under the torah to do what consider him gone because that is not something that you were to do is to go and drag them back that is not something and that's actually when we were went through the the Ten Commandments, we made note that, hey, when it says do not steal, 
It's the same word that's used in this particular passage about kidnapping a person. Yeah, so you can say, do not kidnap a person, their stuff, anything else that's not yours. Do not consider it like kidnapping. You know, we think, oh, you know, just the five-finger discount. No, you don't treat a person like that as a five-finger discount, so don't treat their stuff like a five-finger discount. You just get a, this happened to be in my hand and, oh, sticky fingers and off you go with it. No, you treat other people, other people stuff as not yours. Uh, who actually indeed is your master over it? Who provides for you? Because that was one of the things we saw. Theirs. And they're going to go get my stuff back. My servants, I'm going to go get them back. Like, no, they're not yours. And the people had forgotten that they were supposed to be releasing them. No, not only did they not release them when they should have, but when they figured, oh, I guess this was part of the reason why we've fallen so far. So then they decided to release them. And they're like, no, we don't want to do this. And we just go and get them back again. So... Thus, you accelerate the fall. Uh, yes, Christine, you have a comment or a question over there. So, in Jeremiah, that was the conditions that um, they were supposed to do. And when they decided to do it, but then they re retracted that, that's because a political treaty had been made, right? And Babylon withdrew. That well, is what, what, what you could say is an excuse. Okay. All right. The reason why they didn't do it to begin with was what was going on inside the hearts of the people. Got it. And then why they went and they dragged them back, that was what was going on with the hearts of the people. So thus, you could see that's one example of what um, Yeshua's parable of the unclean spirit. You throw it out. You sweep the house clean. You don't fill it with anything. What happens? Seven unclean spirits come in, and the situation is worse than when you started. The people, there was a recon recognition, oh, we've got a messy house. So you get rid of what you think is the problem, and you sweep the house clean. But you're like, eh, you know, you didn't fill it. There was not a new covenant situation where you had a new heart, and a new spirit, which is why the new covenant is in the context of the exiles and the promise of return. It's to emphasize, why are you in time out, Israel? Why are you not in your land? Why does it seem like the promises of God have been made a laughingstock? Who made them a laughingstock? Why are you in exile? Understand that and say, ah. Oh, just like the people that we just read about today in Jeremiah, they should have had a new heart and new spirit of God. That when they realized the problem, they repented like the people of Nineveh. Yes. Even the animals, they said, well, we just, we got to be in utter repentance, utter teshuva here. We'll even have the animals in sackcloth. Yes. And you see that it was. 30 days, and you will be overturned. Well, they were overturned. They completely changed. That promise could have been for 
Israel and both North and South. That could have been their future. They could have realized, oh, crud, this is now the edict, 30 days, and you're going to be overturned. But no, they decided, eh, we'll repent, but not with sackcloth and ashes. It's too rough. It's kind of scratchy. Yeah, too uncomfortable. But no. They decided to throw off the sackcloth, put back on the nice silk robes, so to speak. And um, yeah, then, yes, the time came, time came due. So that, hopefully, is a great trek through Mishpatim to see these things as not being some, you know, archaic vestiges of uh, sunstroke by people wandering around the desert or the vestiges of oppressive peoples long ago, but rather saying that just like ancient Israel needed a heart change, the new spirit of God put in them, to really live up to the great lessons that the Lord was giving, to just like you've been freed from Mitzrayim, from bondage, the house of bondage, so you free other people. And you also be part of the calling in of all the nations to be freed from their own chains, their own Egypt, their own Mitzrayim. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.